Uh, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to, uh, David's already done it, but I want to thank you for all your prayers. Uh, I had a, uh, a lot of complications, but God has brought me through every one of them. My strength is coming back. I feel good, and I uh, hope my voice lasts this morning. Anyway, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, the scholars and men who study these things say that Peter wrote this letter about 63 A.D. or 64, which means that it was about 30-something years after Jesus went back to heaven. But, you know, there are other scholars who don't believe in the Word of God, and in 1947, a school of thought developed that declared it would have been impossible for an uneducated fisherman like Peter to employ complex sentence structure and sophisticated vocabulary found in this letter. Just one of thousands of attacks that unbelievers have made about the accuracy of the Bible over the years. So how did Peter acquire this wisdom and sophistication to write First Peter, First and Second Peter? Now, those who heard Peter speak after Pentecost discovered the secret. In Luke, uh, Luke records in Acts chapter 4 that after hearing Peter speak, the learned men of the day wondered how he was able to speak with such clarity and such authority. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, that's the secret of it all. It makes such a difference to have been with Jesus. Being with Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Think of the changes in your... If you're a Christian this morning, think of the changes that have been made in your life because you have been with Jesus. Imagine if suddenly every person in Northern California came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. What would the public schools be like? What would UCSC be like? What would it be like to drive on the freeway? Uh, Everything would dramatically change in every aspect of our lives. Everybody would love one another. You wouldn't be able to find a seat in church. We'd have to build new buildings all over this town. It says in the... the, uh, I'd like for you to flip over to chapter 1. It introduces who Peter's writing this book to, or this letter. In verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pilgrims of the dispersion. Who were these people? They were Jewish converts, people who had been raised Jews, who had kept the law of Moses, who had been to synagogue, who kept the Sabbath and the commandments. And then Jesus arrived on the scene, and many of them believed by the thousands that Jesus was the Messiah spoken by the prophet. So they received him as their Lord and Savior, and now by doing that, they were being severely persecuted by Jews who didn't receive Jesus as Savior. And even the Romans began to persecute them. So much so that they had to leave the land of promise and they were scattered into several countries, which he listed in that first verse. You know, it's really hard for us as Christians in America these days to immediately identify with persecution the way they suffered in those days. Severe persecution of Jewish believers in Israel, it caused them to flee to a number of other countries to escape torture and death. They had to leave what they owned. They had to leave everything and go flee to other countries. Now, the places that we read that Peter mentioned in that first verse are mostly in modern-day Turkey, uh, places like Thessalonica and other places like that. Uh, 
And this is where they fled. These are the countries they fled to. Millions of Gentiles heard the good news as a result of this dispersion. What the devil meant for evil against the believers in Jesus, God meant for good. Millions of Gentiles were brought into the kingdom of God by this dispersion of the Jews who believed in the gospel. So try as he may, the devil doesn't stand a chance against God and his people. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, Peter, who had been walking with Jesus for a long time, had some things he wanted to say, and we're going to look at that in chapter 5. As he ends his first letter to these faithful believers in Christ, chapter 5 is the end of the letter, we will notice that his words in our text today are words of exhortation. He's urging God's people, beginning with the pastors, to listen to what he has to say and to obey his instruction. Now, the reason he could do this is because he was an apostle and he was filled with the Spirit of God. And these instructions weren't just from Peter. They were from the Spirit of the living God. So Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So with authority, Peter begins to speak. And look at verse 1, the first part of verse 1. He says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. He starts off with a pastor, strongly urging the pastors to do certain things. And this is what he's about to tell them, and they're not just suggestions. You know, the, the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. They are the commandments of God. And, and these words from Peter are not just Peter's words. They are the commandments of God. He brings very strong words to the pastors, as we shall see, who are the leaders of the churches. These are the men who had been called by God to take care of his flock. Just before he elaborates, he reminds them that he has the authority to do this. Look in the latter part of verse 1. He says, I who am a fellow elder. He was also an overseer of God's people. And he was more than that because Jesus had personally appointed him to be an apostle, sent directly by the Lord Jesus himself. Even though Peter stumbled at first when he denied the Lord, when the Lord was on trial, we know from future writings and the writing in this chapter and the book of Acts that Peter became the man that Jesus wanted him to be. He's an old man now. Uh, and, and if you're in your 60s, forgive me, but that's about how old Peter was. Uh, so he's an aging apostle. He's an older man now. And he wants to pass on to God's people just what kind of people God expects them to be. These are the words of the Apostle Peter and the words of the Holy Spirit. He also says, not only am I an elder, but in the, the very last phrase, or the next to the last phrase of verse 1, it says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he said, I am an elder, and I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter witnessed the trial, the sufferings, and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. It was vivid in his mind. Because it was there that Peter denied the Lord three times. But after he did it, the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Let me, excuse me, let me ask you this question. Have you ever failed God? Have you ever done something wrong that God didn't want you to do? Take heart. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus said, to, I'm going to Galilee and I want you to meet me there. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Can you imagine when Peter got that message? You mean Jesus included me, he said, and Peter? Yes, he did. Well, then Peter made his way to Galilee, and he went fishing. 
And Jesus called him to the shore, and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, by this time, was a little perturbed. He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Take care of the young ones. And then he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, take care of my sheep. The Lord Jesus today is very interested in taking care of you, and he's interested in forgiving you if you have sinned. So if you have failed God recently, take heart because he's a God of forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. As David says often, he says, you can take a thousand steps away from God. There's only one step back. He says, I'm also, in the very last phrase, I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So I am an elder, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I am a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. What did Peter mean by this? That he had experienced the glory that is going to be revealed someday to all believers. Well, I think he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke chapter 9, we read these words. Uh, This is Jesus speaking, and he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. Can you imagine? The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ appeared, and Peter's asleep. Um, Anyway, they were heavy with sleep. When they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who had stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Have you ever been guilty of that, talking and not knowing what in the world you're talking about? Well, you shouldn't do that when you talk to God. (laughs) While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in these days any of the things they had seen. So this is the glory that Peter said he experienced. He actually saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that you and I haven't seen yet, but someday we are going to see it. We're going to see his glory when he comes back for the church. You know, the Bible says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But I think that his, his glory, a lot of his glory is really going to be seen or all of his glory is going to be seen when he comes back with the church for the people who are alive who have uh, lived during the, the great tribulation who repented of their sins and who are living during the millennium. I think he's talking about his second coming to earth. In Revelation 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. But Jesus made it even clearer in Matthew chapter 24, 
when he said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus is going to come with glory and power someday and we're going to see it. Now Peter said, I've already partaken of that glory, uh, but you're going to see it someday. Praise God. Uh, Now the apostle leaves the beginning of the letter and aging and older now, he gives strong words of exhortation to the elders. He says in verse 2, shepherd the flock which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. There are many pastors in this country and others who need to read these words again. There are pastors who do it for the money. There are pastors who don't do it diligently. I heard of one pastor who spends 20 minutes a week on his messages. 20 minutes a week. He gets his outline from the internet and he takes about 20 minutes to learn the outline. Shame on him. He's going to face the Lord someday. He says, shepherd the flock of God. In other words, take care of my sheep. Every one of my sheep is precious to me. I died for them, so take good care of them. Pardon me just a moment. Let me ask you this. How much do you love your children? Do you love your children sometimes so much it hurts? When they were babies, did you go in and make sure they were alive and breathing? Now let me ask you this question. How much does God love you? You know, he proved his love in a thousand ways, but greatest of all, he sent his only begotten son and and watched him be persecuted on trial beaten, whipped, pierced on the cross. You know, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the next verse is pretty good too. It says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, overseers, pastors, be responsible, be diligent. Don't be casual about this responsibility. The Lord Jesus certainly wasn't casual, so don't you be casual. He's saying, these are the people I died for. I want you to take good care of them. I believe when Peter said this, he remembered the words of Jesus that I've already repeated to you. Peter, do you love me? Take care of my sheep. And he's saying the same to Peter now is passing this on. What Jesus said to him, he's passing it on to the pastors. Feed my sheep. A good pastor will spend a great deal of time studying the scriptures and praying so that he will be an effective teacher of the Bible. Shame on pastors today who don't teach the scriptures. You can look in the paper any day of the week almost at... at, uh, Christian advertising, so-called Christian advertising, and they don't talk about teaching the Word of God. It's just some kind of friendly, nice thing. You'll be happy if you come to our church. But they don't teach the Scriptures. 
And they're going to give an account someday to God for not teaching the scriptures. And Peter here is saying to the elders to be diligent about this. He said, be, for instance, Paul said to Timothy, very much in the same vein as Peter saying to these elders, he said in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So a pastor needs to be a workman, and his work is to study the scriptures and to learn the scriptures. The scriptures are alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Your word is truth. Uh, if we learn the word, we will be strong in the Lord. Now, the pastor is to have command of the scriptures, which will make him not only a good teacher, but a wise counselor. He will counsel people according to the scriptures. He's not to be a psychological counselor. Pardon me if you're a psychologist. I don't mean to berate you, but... The pastor is to look to the scriptures to counsel people. The people need to hear God's word, what God has to say, not what man has to say. He also protects the flock from the flock's enemies. You know, the, the Lord said that after I leave, there will be wolves that will come among you. And so he's got to protect the flock from wolves who will come in. False teachers, in other words. And I think it's very similar to what David did with the sheep that he looked out after. David killed a lion and a bear so they wouldn't get the sheep. And there are wolves out there who want to take, lead you astray. And a good pastor is going to uh, watch over the flock and make sure that the enemies of the gospel don't come in and are allowed to teach. And then he says in verse 3, And not being as lords over those entrusted to you. Don't act like God's people are your servants, in other words. Have you ever known a pastor who acted like God's people were his servants? He had his parking place. He said, don't park in my parking place. His office looked like the Taj Mahal. And uh, he thinks that somehow the people of God are his servants. Uh, I think the Lord is saying through Peter here, I've entrusted God's people to you. They're his sheep. They are my servants, not yours. All pastors need to be reminded of this, and they need to be reminded of what Jesus said, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. You want to be great in God's sight, become the servant of everybody. And then in verse 3, he says, be examples to the flock. Be a good example. Live a life that people will appreciate and that people will follow. You know, if you you live a life of of example, you don't need to say very much. People will just follow your example. You know, the Bible says that pastors are not to be uh, in it for the money. How many of you know who in the world Chuck Smith is? Do you know Chuck Smith will not buy a new car? He buys used cars so he won't be a stumbling block to anybody. And if you see somebody on the parking lot picking up trash, it's Chuck. He's the servant of all. And that's the way it should be. And, you know, if you think about it, it may sound simpler than it really is, but it's a tall order. If the pastor will walk with God, will walk in the Spirit, he will be a good example, just like Enoch. You know, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, he had to please God, or he could not walk with God. He had to be a good example, or he could not walk with God. 
That really speaks uh, volumes to us. We need to be a good example like Enoch. And then in verse 4 he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is an amazing thing to me. One day the chief shepherd, who is the chief shepherd? The Lord Jesus. One day the chief shepherd is going to appear with power and great glory and he will reward you for being a faithful pastor. He's talking to the pastors now. And he'll reward everybody for being faithful. He will give you a crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory. What does he mean by this? What is the crown of glory that he's going to give to people who love his appearing? Paul tells us, and he told Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not me only, but all those who love his appearing. So if you love the Lord Jesus, and you love his, when he appears, he's going to give you a crown of glory. It's a crown of righteousness, if you think about it. When Jesus comes back, he's going to give everyone who loves him a crown of righteousness. It will be abundantly clear on that day that we did not earn this crown. You didn't earn a crown of righteousness. It will be abundantly clear to every, all of us that we don't deserve this crown. Uh, there was, uh, I'd like to explain that a little bit, but first of all, let me mention to you that many years ago when C.S. Lewis was still alive, there was a symposium in London, and it was a symposium of supposed thinkers, thinkers who didn't believe in God the way you do. These were men of reputation, scholars. Some were Buddhists, some were Muslims, some believed in, uh, were Taoists, some were Jewish and hadn't received Christ. These think, thinkers came together to discuss one issue. And they discussed this issue at length. And the question they came to discuss is, what is unique about Christianity? What's different about Christianity? And they could not come up with the answer. Well, C.S. Lewis was invited, but he was caught in a traffic jam in London, so he got there quite a bit late. Well, he finally walked in. They said, Mr. Lewis, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we've been discussing what is unique about Christianity. That's easy, he said. What is unique about Christianity is the grace of God. Think about it. You didn't earn your way to heaven. You did not earn everlasting life, did you? The Bible said it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. He loved the world so much he gave his son to die for your sins. When you partake of these elements today, just be reminded that Jesus gave his life for you. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But God, who is in his grace, wants to give it to you because he's a God of love and a God of grace. That's the God that we serve. If you think about it, C.S. Lewis said... Every one of you, the religion that you believe in, says that you have to do something good. You have to do hard works, good works to find good standing with God or Allah or Buddha. You have to do good things and work hard, and then you might not make it. Let me ask you this question. If you could earn your way to heaven, how would you know when you'd done enough? How would you know? Well, I better do ten more things just to be sure. And then you couldn't be sure. But you can't be sure if you receive Jesus as your Savior. You know, the Bible says that uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. You, not you might be saved. You shall be saved. 
For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You know, perhaps there's someone here today who hasn't yet received Christ as Savior and Lord. Let me go back over that real quickly, and maybe you want to do it. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, tell God you believe that. If you believe He's Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, tell God that you believe that. Be like the thief on the cross who looked over at Jesus and said, Lord, he called him Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? After you do 100,000 things, you can come. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. So Jesus died and then he rose from the dead and the thief went to heaven with him. And if you're here today and you haven't received Jesus yet, all you have to do is believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is Lord, and that He died on the cross for your sins. You tell God that, and He will save your soul. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We all went astray, and Jesus took our place. He died on the cross for our sins. What about Abraham? In Romans it says, What then shall we say about Abraham our father? What did he find according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to hope boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David describes the blessedness of the man, I'm reading from Romans chapter 4, by the way. And I've lost my place, excuse me. Just as David describes the blessedness of the man, um, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Do you really appreciate your salvation the way you should? I hope this is a good reminder. You didn't do anything to deserve salvation. God did everything. He wants you to believe Him and trust Him. And if you'll do that, you can have everlasting life. In Ephesians, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand prepared that we should walk in them. I hope you noticed, uh, I hope I didn't go by too fast. It says that in the ages to come, God is going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace. You know, grace saved you. And grace is going to bless you in eternity. God is, going to, God is never going to run out of grace or favor toward those he loves. It says in the ages to come, he's going to keep on showing us the exceeding riches of his grace. 
Think about that. As the ages roll on in eternity, thousands of years after thousands of years, God is, got, is not going to run out of grace to show us. He's going to keep on showing us the riches of His grace. Heaven's going to be so much better than we imagine. No wonder the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, when they received crowns from God, they took their crowns off and cast them at the feet of Jesus and at His throne. Because they said, we don't deserve this. We didn't earn this. You died for us, and that's why we have these crowns. Whatever righteousness we have is because you died for our sins and you rose again. Think about this. As a result of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood paid for every one of our sins. It doesn't matter how many sins you have committed. If you've committed a billion sins, they paid, his blood paid for every one of them. And now the Bible says that God declares you righteous. This is amazing that God would declare sinners righteous, but he does. He is going to declare you righteous. When you stand before him, uh, he will say, you are righteous because Jesus died for you and he took away your sins and I'm declaring you righteous. And here's a crown of righteousness. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. The grace that he's given us is greater than all of our sins. Salvation is all of grace. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. And uh, you can receive the grace of God this morning. I've already mentioned it once, but you can receive the grace of God this morning. You don't necessarily have to be in church. You can be in your bedroom, you can be in your living room, you can be sitting in the pew where you are or in the chair where you are, you can receive the grace of God this morning. There's never a special time that you have to wait to be saved. God is ready at all times to bring you into his kingdom. So I hope you will consider that this morning. And I think probably after communion, David will give you a chance to receive the Lord Jesus Christ if you haven't. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to receive what you want us to remember. Open our eyes and our hearts to the truths of the scriptures and help us to be faithful in obeying you and loving you and help us to be people who are humble and who love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. If you read the rest of the chapter, we won't take the time, but if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find out that he exhorts everyone to humble themselves and to love one another. Uh, I'll tell you this last thing and then I'll say amen. Uh, I've told you this before about six months ago when I spoke, but maybe you need to be reminded. Uh, Many years ago in London, the Salvation Army was meeting for their annual convention. And by this time, William Booth, who was the head of that army and who was in very poor health and was actually dying at home, he could not attend. They were hoping he could attend the convention but he couldn't do it. He was too weak. So they sent a messenger to his home, and uh, they said, would you at least write on this piece of paper what you want to say to us? So he wrote on the piece of paper, and the messenger went back quickly to the large auditorium where thousands of Salvation Army people were meeting. I just messed with the mic. I'm sorry. Um, And so the speaker got up to the microphone, opened up the piece of paper, and there's only one word on the piece of paper. You know what it was? Others. 
You know, the Bible says we are to love one another. And so William Booth said, others, be thinking about other people. You think about yourself enough, right? You're always on your mind, right? God says, think about other people. Love one another. What if God's people would truly love one another? What if God's people would never talk about each other, would never gossip, would never complain about each other? Wouldn't the world be amazed? Wouldn't many people be enamored with what it's like to be a Christian? So I really urge you and to read the rest of chapter 5. Peter says, humble yourself. He said, love one another. And be, you know, think of others better than yourself. Be a servant. He that is greatest among you is the servant of all. I'd like to leave you with that. In Jesus' name, amen.